<laughs> Make them stop. Ha! I'm on. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to feel like I have to turn around, and I'm, I have a hard time with that anyway, so... I remember in speech class, they were always telling you, and, and you didn't want to have the motor head. You know what that is? It's where you go, like the sprinkler. They also call it a sprinkler head, where you're like in your, in your speech going like this. Which I, I, yeah, I would try to do that, and then it was like you get fixated on, like, all right, John, you're it. You're the man. I'm going to focus on you. Professor would go. <clears throat> you're like, <clears throat> All right, before we get uh, anything recording, which they probably are, right? I don't know how this thing works, but um, let a little discussion. <clears throat> what do you remember from last Sunday's sermons, messages, slash whatever that you've been going deeper, digging on, and working to apply? Open discussion. What you got? Okay, next. We do have them online, but whatever. We won't go down that road. This is... <laughs> okay, thanks, John. One. Okay, next. Anything. I'm, you, you guys are scaring me. Okay, this is kind of why I'm poking. He wasn't looking good as a future husband, was he? You know, failed points everywhere. Community discussed, you know, kind of thing. Anything from Joe's message? Not today's. That's cheating. Which you probably may not have recollection of that. And we'll work on that. What I'm getting at is you got to take some notes. Or review the notes that are on the Bible app. Whichever, I forget, what's the name of that one, dear? New version? Yeah. U version. Bruce works through the notes and makes the shortcut notes. So something you can always have with you and do. I, I don't know. I don't want to be rude. And, I, and I have, I'm saying it always to myself. But you never want to go to church and come out with an empty thimble. You want to come out studying it through the week. If not, this is rude. If not, why did you go to church? It's to hear the word, to grow with the word, and allow the word to penetrate into us. And that takes work. It's not something we get osmotically. If it was, you and I would be sleeping on our, our uh, Bibles as our pillows at night. It doesn't work that way. So it takes work. It takes intention. Find someone to maybe just review. Talk to your spouse. Talk to someone to call someone. Just review it. And... Uh, let the word penetrate, make the change. Because the word needs to make changes in our life. Uh, and if it doesn't, we need to get a little bit further. Let me pray so I can kind of calm down. So, Father, you know exactly what we're covering this morning, but I ask that you will settle my mind, allow me to focus on the text before us and let us all dig deeper in the week on the truth that we've heard today and each and every week that we would know you more, 
grow more in our, not just in the knowledge, but in that which changes us, and that's your word. God, give us wisdom to grow and insight to see clearly the things that you would have us to know deeply. God, we love you, and again, thank you for your care and love. In Jesus, amen. I was struggling this week going, where do I go? After, you know, the, the whole thing after you get done teaching, you're empty. You got to go back and work on the next week. And I was sitting there trying to do something out of Mark, because that's the book that I'm currently studying. And God was just putting everything as a no, no. And I go, what about that? No. What about no? And finally, I kind of went, oh, what do you want me to do? And he says, well, you did start with a sign. Why don't you finish them? And I went, hmm, okay. So, last time we started with the sign that Christ is God and is turning water into wine. The best wine. For the next three weeks, we'll attempt to cover seven more signs that are recorded in the Gospel of John. Guess what that means? If you got three into seven, yeah, you got it. It's about two a week. So before we get too deep, I'd like to make sure we understand the biblical definition or theological understanding of miracle. Okay? We hear the term used many ways in many places, right? We've used it ourselves. First, I, and some of you will giggle, but this, what, okay, this is my mind. You're getting a deep insight. My poor wife has to deal with it. Uh, this is a deep insight of where my mind goes from time to time. So the first thing that hit me was the movie Princess Bride, okay? Where the mostly dead Wesley is taken to Miracle Max and his wife in hopes to return him to life. Miracle Max builds a concoction that should work, but it's going to be very slow. As the party leaves, dragging Wesley along with them, Miracle Max's wife asks the question, Will they make it? Max's response, it will take a miracle. Is this a miracle? No. Some will say it will take a miracle to get him out of bed. Or others will say it will be a miracle if we arrive at our destination. There are so many that we can imagine the wild use of the word, but is this the insight and the meaning of the biblical understanding of miracles? Well, let me first state that I am not saying that God does not answer prayer. His supernatural work is ongoing today. We see the miracle daily in the many that are saved by the work of the Holy Spirit, but theologically there is a strict definition for miracles. Dr. R.C. Sproul states it clearly. A miracle, properly speaking, is an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature that only God can do. For example, resurrections, floating axe heads, different scripture comes up in your head. Considered this way, it seems clear that miracles are not occurring in the present. The article that I was reading continues, The first line of evidence for this is the fact that despite all claims to the contrary, we do not see miracles in the strict sense happening today. Some claim to be resurrecting the dead or causing amputees to grow new 
brand new limbs. But no person making such claims has been able to provide confirmation. Second and more important, Scripture's presentation of the purpose of miracles indicates that they are not occurring in our day. Turn to Hebrews 2, verse 1. We'll read verse 1 through 4. They say that miracles were given to confirm that the message of the gospel was from God. Ties up what Dr. Sproul brought up. Verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by the signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, miracles in the narrow sense are granted by the Lord to demonstrate that a messenger has been sent by him with his word. End quote. So our study for the next three weeks will cover at least two miracles per week, miracle signs. It's not going to be a detailed study. We're not going to get down to the grind. I ask you to take what little I do give you and take it and go deeper during the week. There's so much in each one of these signs and each and every one of the signs that it would take weeks to kind of go through the details and to grab everything out. There's so much going on, so much in culture that you have to understand. So hopefully we can cover some of that in the two that we do each week. So as we meet each week, keep in mind the stated purpose of John's inclusion of the signs in the gospel record. Keep this in your head. Maybe review it, make a note of it, and say, I need to review this and go back so I know where the signs fit. John 20 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again, these signs are there that we will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're evidence. They're pure evidence. All right, sign number one that we're going to look at. So first time again, we started with the, the turning of the water into wine. This time we move a little further into the text through John, and John in, disperses these things throughout the gospel. This one is the healing of the government official's son. So turn in your, your Bibles to John 4, and we'll go 46 through 54. Starting in verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The officials said to him, Sir, come down before my son dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. 
The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And he's, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. First point, verses 46 through 47. Father's panic for healing. He's panicked. He's desperate. We can understand that feeling. We can understand the anguish the man is feeling. This father is an official of, the, of Capernaum. Here's that Jesus is in Cana, and he hastens to get Jesus for his healing and dying son. Even though he is a government officer with power and status, he comes with desperation that he needs Jesus to come and heal his son. There's nothing he can do as a human. Is it the end? He knows that if something does not change, his son is going to die. So it's an absolute for him. Travels all the way from Capernaum on the northern tip of Lake Galilee, about 13 miles. Here again, we are in the small village of Cana where the first sign was given. No doubt, he has heard of what Jesus had done, possibly not only the reports there, what happened at the wedding, but also additional reports as Jesus was down in Judea. So he's hearing things. He knows. He's come to, to Jesus. He knows he's literally the last hope that he's got. He really comes not looking for him, anything for himself. It's just his dying son. That's all he's focused on. He's desperate. Notice that what he thinks will ha have to happen is that Jesus will need to come and touch his son. The healers of that day, that's the normal stance that they'd have to be there and do something. But that's not the issue. Jesus is going to heal him from afar. Move to verse 48. Jesus' statement is a call for faith and faith to grow. It does sound kind of harsh, doesn't it? Where this man is desperate and Jesus comes up and he goes, you're just looking for signs and wonders. You're looking for the show. That's not the key issue here. You've got to go deeper. And he does. He draws this much deeper. One commentator broke down Jesus' response this way. With unerring accuracy, our Lord put his finger on the weakness of the people's faith. They were following Jesus as if he were a religious sideshow. He continues. The trust of what Jesus was saying was, oh, that you would think less about the wonders and more about me. He wanted them to go beyond signs and miracles to trust him and believe in his word. We do have incidents of this where faith has got to be much deeper. We encounter Thomas. Well, no, I have a problem. I don't really like calling him a doubting Thomas. I just call him a man who looks for empirical proof and he understands and, and you see he understands that if Jesus truly is risen he knows that the call in his life is an apt and it's a hard life I mean Jesus did say that if you come follow me you have to take up your cross daily 
That's to go to death. And we understand Thomas's reply in John 20, 28, and 29, my Lord and my God. Notice, he, Jesus said, Reach, stretch forth your hand and touch my hand and my side. Did Thomas ever get to that point? No, never did. He just dropped to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 also brings what faith really drives to the point of being in our life. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And again, the father, as we go to the next verse, 49, he's still in the mindset of saying, you got to come. Again, the father struggles to get Jesus to come down to his son for healing, not understanding that Jesus can heal from anywhere. But the issue is not a location. But the father to have faith that Jesus can heal not only his son physically, but him spiritually. So in 50 through 53, you see the faith growing. Jesus makes an almost simple statement to the Father telling him, and, and just, just think, just put yourself in the scene. You're desperate. Your son's dying. You come to Jesus. You're looking for some event. You're looking for some show. You're looking for anything. And all Jesus says is, go, your son will live. That's it. No fanfare. No lights, smoke. No band. Go. Your son will live. That's it. So what do you think this man's response is going to be? Are you kidding me? That's it? I came all this way for... No. After pleading with Jesus to come with faith, he just goes. Look at the text. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. It almost sounds like something is missing, right? Why is he not asking for verification or some evidence that his son will live? Has he received any proof? No. What does he do? He trusts Jesus. He rests in the words of Jesus being truth. With that, his action is by faith. Let me ask you that. Do we do that? Do we hear from Jesus and still doubt his words and challenge his will? James 1, 5 through 8 is very sobering. Sometimes it's hard to read. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him... Ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person who must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
On the father's return trip home, he encounters his servants with the news that his son is recovering. And he asks the specific question, when did this start happening? It matches exactly the time. Seventh hour, for us, it translates to 1 p.m. 1 p.m. in Cana, guess what? 1 p.m. in Capernaum. What's going on? Faith. Notice, too, that this was the next day. I think that's the most amazing thing. And there's not a lot of detail. We have nothing that fills this gap in, but he doesn't start out on his trip back home. It's 1 o'clock. He could have made it or gotten there pretty late at night. And he's on horse. That's an obvious assumption. He could have gotten back quickly. But it's the next day that he leaves. That's a man trusting faith. What's he doing? The only thing we can surmise is the fact that he just wanted to continue and spend more time to talk to Jesus and the disciples and to understand who Jesus is and understand more of what he's teaching. That's another act of faith because he's not rushing home going, well, if this doesn't work, I've got to find someone else. No, it's a complete trust. He waits. It's not till the next day. Of course, his guys are coming to get him going, it's okay. He's recovering. In his mind, he goes, I know. Jesus said so. The truth, he responded to when Jesus said for him to go, your son will live, grows even deeper when we read, and he himself believed in all his household. You know what? I would really love to have been at that home hearing his testimony. First, his testimony of what his thoughts were as he was going to Jesus. And then his thoughts after he met Jesus and his faith grew and his son is right next to him. What that testimony was like. I would have loved to have been there. You know, it's one of those moments and times that, you know, you want to be the fly on the wall. Not necessarily a fly, it's gross, but whatever. You understand? I'd love to be in the room. Hear his testimony. It's a second sign in Galilee. They're getting tons of information. Two signs now in Galilee, starting in verse 54. The evidence is building, but we go through John, and you'll see that even the public signs and the clear evidence, many don't even believe. So why do people, when faced with the clear evidence, not believe? Well, for most, it's an unwillingness to come to Jesus, surrendering their whole lives, and will before him to do his will. Some as we'll see as we keep going, like to watch the signs and even be fed, but will not come all the way to Jesus. Jesus even asked one time, is the only reason you're following me is because I fed you? Really? Is that it? They're happy for the show and enjoy the food, but that's as far as they will get to Jesus. A commitment to Jesus is just too much. I move a little bit further down into John to the next sign. And it's healing a lame man. We'll go to John chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. Let me read it. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roof colonnades. On these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now for today, we're, we're not going to get into the details going beyond this. We're not going to go to the reaction of the man and what the religious leaders were confronting. Were they of any praise of those religious leaders that a man was healed after 38 years of immovability? No. What were they concerned about? You broke a man-made law and you're carrying your mat. You know, I, I was talking with a brother about this thing, and he said, man, I'll tell you what, I, if I was the guy carrying my mat and they confronted me, and you know what I would say? Tough dudes, deal with it. I'm walking. I'm out of here. It was just the most ridiculous thing. Are they praising God for a miracle? No, you broke a man's law. That was a man-made law. Trying to make you think you're religious by what you do. It's all heart action. So verse 1, John starts us off with more of a location and a reason why Jesus was there, but no exact time. The declaration of the feast is not important for the event, and John does not include the detail. It's, in, it's not important. What we know is that a feast of the Jews brought Jesus to Jerusalem, so we know where Jesus is at the time. That's all John's giving us. In verse 2, we are given the location. We are in an area of Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate, where there is a pool called Bethsaida. Now start getting detailed when you're reading the Word. For many years, critics of the Bible said there was no evidence of the pool, and the Bible had to be wrong. Okay, guess what? You're wrong. We now have a scroll that has the name of the pool of the pool system, and we also have the location of the twin pools. Twin pools? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep hanging. Twin pools were next to each other, having four roofed colonnades each while sharing one in the middle, hence the five. Okay? There's kind of a little bit of a rock abutment that comes up that's between the two. The roof colonnades were shelters for those at the pool from the harsh elements, giving them some relief. Considering the group of people, which we'll detail next, their need for some form of protection from the elements is obvious. I go to verse 4. Verse 4 provides those that are gathered at the pool. First fact that hits is the position of their bodies. What are they doing? Sitting? Strolling? They're laying. They're immovable. They're not walking around enjoying the pool and, and, and the refreshing waters, but they're laying. The description of the crowd details the reason. They are a multitude, a large group, of invalids. And more detail to that, they're what? 
blind, lame, and paralyzed. They cannot move. Movement on their own power is not possible even for the blind as they will have no idea in what direction to go if there is a clear path to walk. Nobody is moving about, but they're waiting. The remainder of verse 3, now understand, and this is where some of you, you'll read the notes in your Bible. The remainder of verse 3 and the whole of verse 4 is not in some Bibles, especially here in the ESV. Here, it goes from verse 3 to 5. You ever been on an elevator and you're looking for the 13th floor? Guess what? It ain't there. And you're going, one, two, four, two, one, one two, three, twelve, four. What is that, the non-floor? Believe it or not, I've been in some buildings, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. But there's a reason why that doesn't exist. The section is not found in the early manuscripts of the book of John. They're thought to be scribal notes that actually help us to understand a little bit of the background of why they're waiting at this pool for the stirring up of the water. At that time, there was a lot of error and a lot of error in understanding in the area of angelology or the understanding of angels. And there was major error, and you, you do find the error being brought up at times, especially in the book of Hebrews, because they were so focused on angels, they weren't focused on God, they were focused on servants. And every single time you had an angel showed up and they, they wanted to worship the angel, the angel says, stop, no, you can't. I'm like you, I'm, no, I'm not at that level. So it's there to kind of maybe help us to understand what is occurring. Well, why is everyone waiting at this pool? It's kind of a strange event. So consider this scene with this pool having a multitude of invalids, and then there's a disturbance of the water. What do you imagine would occur? I mean, just mind's eye, think about it. Mass pandemonium, right? Chaos. I mean, it, it's, it's nutsville all over the place. Everyone trying to get to the water, crawling over stationary bodies with shoving and pulling to get to the water first. Some could not even move, being dependent upon someone to move them in an instant. And you're just waiting for the water. Okay, let's go a little further. Verse 5, we have a specific detail now with this invalid man. Now notice, specific details are very important in the scriptures, putting it in there for us to understand the depth. The specific detail here is the fact that this man's been in this state for 38 years. Well, so? Okay, that's just information. Nah, it's detail. Make note where there are specifics in the scriptures, such as the number of years. In this case, we are given a fact that the man has been disabled for 38 years, well beyond any possibility that his body will naturally repair itself. 38 years laying on the ground, what's the big thing that's happening? It's atrophy. Not only atrophy of his muscles, his bones are deteriorating. They're, they're getting thinner. I mean, if this guy did stand up, there's a good chance he'd break both of his legs. But if it were 38 days, and if he was young, there could be a natural healing, but not after 38 years. It's requiring God's intervention to do something. It's not just going to happen. 
That's why you get dates. That's why you get some time. How long? How long is critical because it helps us to go. It's just not going to happen on its own. No one can sit and come and say, well, it was his time. No, it wasn't. It wasn't naturally going to do this. So being lame for 38 years also means that his bones, his muscles have deteriorated and he couldn't walk, but it's going to be, it's not going to be pretty if he could even get up. Verse 6. Jesus sees the man lying and knows that he's been in that state for a long time. Also note that we do not hear of any disciples being with Jesus, so we're to assume that Jesus is alone and unrecognized by those around in the pool. But he focuses on this one man. You and I get this next section and go, what? He asks him a strange question that hits our ears very awkwardly. Do you want to be healed? Now, I would think that he would give a snarky remark back to Jesus and say, do you think I'm here just enjoying the sunshine? No. Jesus' question goes much deeper than we see on the surface. Jesus knows that he needs healing, for the question is pointing to a different healing. Same thing with the father, desiring and needing Jesus to heal his son. There is a need for the healing, but the greater part is what? The father needs salvation. This lame man needs salvation. Healing, yes, but... It's much deeper than that. So Jesus' question goes to the heart of the matter, the healing of sin. We read in verse 14 that this man has been in this condition because of sin. Now, we've got no more information than that. We don't know if because of sin he did something that paralyzed him. We don't know anything beyond that, and we really can't go any further. But that's just a fact. It's there in 14. So go to verse 7. He does not return that nasty reply, but more like a hope that Jesus will stick around long enough to help him get to the water whenever it gets stirred up. He also states the superstition of the water being stirred up. There's no more in the dialogue. Jesus does not go into a long discussion of the man's sin and the need for salvation, but just heals him. Verse 8, very straightforward, simple statement. Jesus commands the man, get up, take up your bed, walk. That's it. Notice what's missing. There's not a call from Jesus for his faith. There's no request from the man to have faith. He is not even noted as having any faith, even in the following verses from the miracle. There is no question whether he has enough faith to be healed. Jesus commands him to get up, and he's healed. It's not a faith thing. Now, that does come later as Jesus seeks him out and confronts him. But at this point, we see nothing. You know, the faith healers today are going to definitely struggle with this text. Because they will say, well, if someone's not healed, they didn't have enough faith. Not the faith healer is a false teacher, they're going to say he doesn't have enough faith. Well, this guy's got none, okay? 
Jesus healed the man not contingent on his faith. It was the desire of the God-man to heal the man. Later, he does confront him of his sin and states that if he does not repent from his sin, the result will be far more worse than what he's experienced the last 38 years. So again, it's a miracle that points to Jesus. Verse 9, the man does just that, gets up, walks. His healing is instantaneous, not gradual, and not needing any rehab. The bones are strengthened, the muscles are built and strengthened, and his balance and ability to walk is complete. No rehab. How many of you had any kind of surgery or anything that you remember those fun days with the walker? Horrible device, right? I couldn't stand the thing. Of course, I had struggles with it because I'd still going at the same speed and take that right turn and I'd fall over and frustrating. This man, none of that. Up and going. And he did. Got up, rolled up the mat, walked. Gone. So what do we get out of this miracle? And then in one aspect, here's a man who in all of his efforts or lack of could not heal himself. But yet he was still there. Maybe for years. We don't know how long he was actually there. No matter how hard he tried, nothing. Waiting for man's help. Nothing. Looking at the world around him for, from the ground. Any help? Nothing. That is the same for those who have not gone to Jesus for healing, for salvation. They go through life seeking man's solutions, but yet they are still broken and lost. They try with their mind to deny the truth in the Bible and they stay lost in their life. Well, they think that all is good and they evaluate their life and status or wealth and they're fine. They're not lost. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Everything's great. Have you ever not heard that with people? How's everything? Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Really? What happens when you die? Paul is clear in Romans 1 that man has taken the truth about God and knowingly replaced it with a lie. They have replaced God's way with their own. To the Christian, and this is to me, are you still trying to do things on your own and not surrendering all to Jesus? We know that if Christ be before us, who can be against us? You know that truth. We also know in the same breath that we can do nothing without Christ. The true believer is the one who obeys and strives to live according to the scriptures. Whatever you're trying to do on your own or the wisdom of this age, will you surrender all that hinders you from following Christ with your whole life? I mean, the whole song went, the hymn went through my head. But I think just by stating a few words, you're going to have the hymn going through your head too. Remember the old hymn, simple line, I surrender all. I have nothing. I surrender all. Is it going through your head? You got the chorus? Yeah, it's... 
what do these miracles show us? Everything about who Jesus is. What do these miracles show us very clearly? We're desperately in need of Him. He is the only healer. He's the only one that we can turn to for every aspect of our life. Nothing comes from the world. Nothing comes from our own wisdom. It comes only from Jesus. So a surrendered and completely yielded life to Jesus moment by moment is where we live. Let's pray. Two miracles presented before us. God, we need your deeper insights as you take us through the text and to see even more of what you're trying to communicate to us. A desperate father's son is healed by a word. A man lame for 38 years is healed by a word. None of these men did anything. They came seeking other things. They went away understanding things differently. As best as we can tell and understand the text, the father went home saved, went home rejoicing, went home sharing the truth with his family. And his family was saved. The sad part, we have a man fully healed after 38 years of laying on the ground, waiting and hoping for a ripple of the water. And we go to the end of the text and we're not convinced that he really did seek Christ completely in salvation. He just gets a rebuke and a warning. I ask that you don't just rebuke us, but that we actually follow through in our complete walk in our life of trust and full trust in you. Not holding anything back, not surrendering to anything of this world, but surrendering everything to you. God, grow us to be men and women strong in the word and strong in, in a relationship, in an intimate relationship with you each and every day. God, grow us to be men and women to be strong and strong witnesses for you in the world that so hates you. God, we love you and so are thankful for all that you continually do and care in Jesus. Amen.